All right, welcome everybody. Come on in. If you haven't grabbed an outline, some notes, they're on the back uh, table there. As you walk in, you will really be helped if you, if you have one of these. In fact, um, you, you want one of these because we're, gonna, we're gonna about to get on a highway and we're going to uh, go about 75 miles an hour. So you will definitely want one of these. And uh, welcome everybody. We are not going to have a song or two like we usually do on a midweek fellowship just because there's so much material to cover and we want to be uh, we want to be uh, cognizant of the time, and so uh, I'm going to get into it. Well, really glad that you're here, um, and you, if you wandered in unaware, you are at uh, the first week of a four-part study that we are doing on the end times, which oftentimes is also called, or the theological term is eschatology, which means the study of last things. And so, uh, as I was preparing this these last few days and really a couple of weeks doing a lot of reading, I started to think of, man, what have I gotten myself into? Only four weeks. We're just going to be for the remaining Wednesdays in July. There's so much more to cover. So realize that we're going to be kind of skimming over like a 30,000 foot level, um, some things that really we could take a long, long time to discuss. And here's another thing that I want to say before we, we start working through this out, before I pray and start working through this outline, is that I would say that this is probably one of the most uh, challenging and um, disputed, not, not in a hostile sort of way, but one of those areas of theology where there are many, many, many very faithful and very intelligent and very sharp, wise Christians through the history of the church who disagree on, on these issues because this area of, of doctrine, this area of theology, looking at the last time, the end times and the timing of things is more ambiguous and more clouded and more difficult to interpret than other areas of doctrine. It doesn't make the things that we're going to talk about today less true, especially some of the cardinal things that I think all Christians should believe. But it does make us realize that we really need to enter into this discussion with a lot of humility. So, um, but I'm excited to get into this. So here, let me just kind of go through what our, our weeks are. To this week, you can see on the top of your sheet there, we're going to look at the millennial views. Uh, there are, are really three major ones, with one of them being kind of an offshoot of the third. So really, we're going to look at four millennial views today. Uh, I'm sure you've probably heard these words post and pre and um, what do those things mean? Uh, next week, we're going to look at Jesus. We're going to zero in a little bit more uh, and look at like Matthew 24 uh, and, and events surrounding Jesus' return. We're going to look at the rapture. What is the rapture? We're going to look at the tribulation, different views on those things. Then the third week... Uh, we're going to look at what we would call personal eschatology or like how it affects me personally. Like, in other words, what happens when you die? Uh, the, many Christians don't realize that if we were to all die tonight, if a meteor were to hit this church and we were all, those of us that are trusting in the Lord, which I praise all of us, we would, be, we would be with the Lord, but we would be in what's called an intermediate state. We wouldn't be fully glorified. That's, that's going to be a time later in the future when Jesus returns, and so we're going to look at that. Very interesting. I think that will really encourage us. And then week four, uh, we're going to look at the issues. These tend to be really controversial and um, hotly debated. And we're going to look at the relationship between Israel and the church. In particular, how does Old Testament Israel 
and then New Testament uh, and current time political Israel relate to the church. And we're going to kind of look at some keys for interpreting biblical prophecy. Of course, not not exhaustively, but we're going we're gonna to do our best to sort of come up with some tools to help us think through even current issues a little bit more wisely. Okay, so as I said there, few areas of Christian theology are more confusing uh, or difficult than eschatology. Um, some people are very, very interested in these issues, and they've developed strong convictions, and I think people can be so interested in this that they can actually kind of fall off to a ditch on, on almost a two, like a two dogmatic uh, side. And then there are some people that are just not interested at all and just kind of sort of don't care about it and they're sort of flippant about it. I, I think that both of those can be, can be kind of downfall. So we want to, in this time, um, just sort of come up with some handlebars to, uh, to really navigate through these, these things in the Bible, these truths in the Bible a little bit more faithfully. We want to approach this with humility and graciousness. So um, we are certain that Christ is coming back and that God will triumph over Satan and that, that evil is real and these things are very important to think about. Many related issues of interpretation and timing upon which faithful Christians disagree. So therefore, we must approach these issues with humility and graciousness towards fellow Christians, certainly even in this room and within this church, who disagree or differ with each one another over these issues. So this is certainly an area where faithful Christians can have uh, very strong and divergent uh, differences and disagreements. Over the history of the church, great theologians, preachers, and leaders have been all over the spectrum on these issues. So having said that, there are four truths right there in the middle there that I think all Christians can agree on, and I really think all Christians should believe. One is that Jesus Christ will physically return to earth one day. He, he physically rose from the grave. He physically resurrected. In fact, that's the hope of, of uh, the gospel. That's 1 Corinthians 15. He didn't just raise as an idea from the grave or a hope or, a, or an ethic or a teaching. Uh, or He wasn't just an inspiration. He physically arose and he will physically return one day. The Bible clearly teaches that. All Christians should believe that. There will be a bodily resurrection of all people who ever live. So if, again, if we were to die tonight, our bodies would go on the ground, our spirits would be with the Lord, and we would await a future uh, glorification where we receive glorified bodies. And we'll talk a little bit about what that looks like when we get to week three in personal eschatology. So uh, heaven is not going to be us in sort of disembodied states with white robes and wings and flying around on clouds with harps and sort of a strange, weird, like cartoonish existence. It's going to be real. In fact, it's going to be as more real than we can even imagine. We will be glorified like Christ are in the bodily resurrection. Third, Satan, praise God, will be defeated and constrained forever and ever. And then fourth, there will be a final judgment in which believers join Christ for eternity while non-believers are separated from God's presence forever to suffer eternal punishment and torment uh, separated from God forever. So those are four things that I think all Christians, regardless of where they fall on their views of the end times, can, in fact, should believe. Let me read to you from our statement of faith here at Crosspoint. This is a beautiful paragraph. It makes me, it, it, it just warms my soul. It encourages me. It strengthens me every time I read it. And this is what uh, is in our statement of faith, the restoration of all things. We believe in the personal, glorious, and bodily return of our Lord Jesus Christ with his holy angels. 
when he will exercise his role as final judge and his kingdom will be consummated. We believe in the bodily resurrection of both the just and the unjust, the just to judgment and eternal conscious punishment in hell, as our Lord himself taught, and the just to eternal blessedness in the presence of him who sits on the throne and of the Lamb, in the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness. On that day, the church will be presented faultless before God by the obedience, suffering, and triumph of Christ, all sin purged and its wretched effects forever banished. God will be all in all, and his people will be, in. I love this, enthralled by the immediacy of his ineffable holiness. I'm not exactly sure what ineffable means, but it has got to be awesome. And everything will be to the praise of his glorious grace. So friends, you can hang on to that. All Christians can and should believe that. We we are, we are leaning forward into certain victory where Jesus will reign forever and ever and ever, and we will be with him. Okay, let's flip the page. And before I get into these millennial views and read from Revelation 20, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we, as we gather here tonight, we thank you for the kind grace that you give us to gather together as your people, to think about uh, deep and... Um, and, and hard to interpret truths and scriptures. And we know that the difficulty is on our end. It's not that you can't communicate, but sin has so marred us that uh, we see through a mirror or a glass dimly, as the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13. And so we don't see things like we should. But by your grace, by your Holy Spirit, you, you, you are kind to us, and you have given us your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us tonight. Pray that you'd produce in us confidence and joy and eager expectation. I pray that you'd also help us be humble and gracious as we think about these things where many Christians may differ. And I pray, Lord, that this, even this uh, time where we're talking about these views of the millennium and the future would help to conform us all into the image of Christ. And, Lord, I pray that if there's any person in this room tonight who is not yet trusting in Jesus, that you might even use this consideration of future events to be something that would wake them from their slumber and let them know that the seriousness of judgment and the weight that is bearing down on their soul if they are outside of Christ and that their only hope is to turn to Jesus, to turn from their sin, to turn from self-trust, to turn from these false counterfeit joys that will never satisfy and to turn in faith to the King, Jesus, who is coming again. Lord, I pray that you do these things for our good and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, if you have a Bible, open it to Revelation chapter 20. We'll have it on the screen. Now, I'm going to read the first few verses of Revelation 20, which is probably one of the most important and disputed passages in the, the whole Bible regarding the end times. Now, let me just very briefly give you just a quick overview of Revelation. So Revelation, and by the way, there's just one of them. Sometimes we say Revelations, it's just Revelation with no S. It was just one long, big Revelation. Is the disciple John, later in his life, uh, probably 89 or so, uh, as a prisoner on an island, receiving this Revelation 
about future events, and it is, it is if you've ever read it, very difficult. Lots of symbols, lots of uh, strange creatures and things that are very difficult to understand. A very quick breakdown outline of the book of Revelation is, is that the first three chapters are letters written to present-day churches that John was, was, you know, knew of. And then chapters 4 through 19 are these apocalyptic, apocalyptic um, symbolic visions of, of seals and trumpets and, and uh, battles and, and a great uh, the, a, a woman representing the church and a child representing Jesus and, and uh, the Antichrist and the dragon and all of these 4 through 19 are these kind of these symbolic visions really about God pouring out his wrath on, on the world. And then chapters 20, 21, and 22 are really pointing towards the in the final state when everything is finally, evil is finally and fully vanquished. So I know that's so much more we could say, but that's just kind of a quick breakdown of Revelation. Now in Revelation 20, the first uh, few verses is the only place in the Bible where it speaks about this thing called the millennium. And this has become kind of the point of contention or debate or, you know, just discussion for thousands of, hundreds and hundreds of years in the history of the church. So let me read in Revelation 20, starting in verse 1. <coughs> then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So that's the first time we see this time period, a thousand years. We're going to see it a couple times in these few verses. Bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So that's the only place in the Bible where this period of time called the millennium, or a thousand years, is mentioned. And it has become um, a, a point of great discussion over the history of the church. And from these six verses have developed four uh, really views about the timing of that millennium and how it relates to Jesus' return. So we're going to work through those four views. I'll kind of stop along the way. Any questions? And then we'll, at the end, we'll stop and have questions and hopefully we'll have time. So the first is, and this is in no particular order, you know, it's just, just kind of the way actually it was in the book the books that I was reading. So there's, it's not like my favorites first or the best ones first or anything like that. It's just, this is just the order that, that I read them in. Post-millennialism. That's the first view. And what we're talking about, what that means is, 
is the post is referring to when Jesus comes in relationship to the, this period of a thousand years. So this first view, and realize, friends, that we only read six verses out of Revelation, and there's a whole bunch of other verses in the Bible that talk about the end of the age and the end times. But this, how you view the millennium really becomes kind of like a framework for how you piece the rest of the Bible and end times together. So post-millennialism, meaning that um, they believe that Jesus comes after the millennium. So here are the main points. This, uh, this particular perspective believes that um, the progress of the gospel and the church uh, and the growth of the church will gradually increase so that an increasingly larger portion of the world will become Christian. So you can see on the graph there, you see the cross there on the far left, that represents Jesus' death and burial, resurrection, and ascension. And we are currently in the present age, or sometimes called the church age. And the people that hold this view see the millennium as something in the future, and that the millennium will be marked by not by Jesus' return, but the millennium will actually come before Jesus' return. And the millennium will be a time of gradual and eventually worldwide expansion of Christianity. What is the scriptural proof or uh, 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 verses that proponents would point to? They would point to Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20 in the Great Commission, where Jesus commands his disciples to go baptize all nations, disciple them, and teach them the truth. And, and so um, he, he, they're seeing that Jesus has told us to go do this and that Jesus is the victor. And so, he, you know, his people are going to accomplish his mission. They also would point to Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus, upon uh, Peter's confession, says that um, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so there's this sense that, that Jesus is, is, is um, promised the victory of his church here and now. And so they would see that as, as evidence of this increasing Christianization of the world before Jesus comes. They would also point to the, uh, the parables of the kingdom like Matthew 13 that speak of the, uh, the kingdom of God is like leaven. that is, it, You put, a, put it into a batch of dough and then over the course of time you're kneading it into the whole batch of dough and that's the way the gospel is in, at work in the world. It's like slowly growing and will continue to grow until the world will be Christianized and then Jesus will, will come back again. They would also point to many Old Testament uh, passages which speak of the universal and triumphant reign of the Messiah, and you can read those at, at your leisure. The beginning of the millennium, they believe, is either gradual or abrupt. In fact, some believe that it may have already started uh, or it's entirely yet to come. And, but the timing of the start of the millennium is debated. There's just different, lots of variation there uh, on, on that. The millennium will see a tremendous expansion of Christianity, increased peace and prosperity in the world, and a large number of ethnic Jews will come to faith in Christ. And they base that, in fact, I think, I think all Christians believe, all views believe this, clearly because of Romans chapter 11. And we're really going to get into Romans chapter 11 when we talk about Israel and the church, where uh, the Bible seems to clearly teach that there will be a, um, a future uh, large-scale conversion of, of, uh, ethnic, of, of ethnic Jews. Um, where am I? So the, 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 okay, so the next point is, is that during this millennium, Christ is in heaven 
not on earth, but he exercises his reign through the Spirit and the church's preaching of the gospel. The first resurrection is believers' spiritual transformation from death to life through union with Christ. After the millennium, for a brief time before Jesus' return, you can see there that Satan will be released at the end of this time, and all that happens very quickly, Christ will return to earth. Believers and unbelievers will be raised. The final judgment will occur, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and the eternal state begins. So you can see here, we're in this present age. Eventually, just the world will begin to get more and more Christian. Christ will come, and then really all kind of in one fell swoop will be the resurrection, the judgment, and then we enter into uh, the new heavens and, and the new earth. The primary characteristic of, of this, and what, one thing that I appreciate, although I don't hold to this view, I actually wish it was true. <laughs> this would be the one that I would want the most. I just, I just don't, um, I don't find as much biblical evidence for it. But the primary characteristic of, this, of it is optimism about the power of the gospel to change lives and bring about much good. I mean, it just, just kind of see, sees the church as an army advancing and growing. The kingdom of God is being extended through the preaching of the gospel. Eventually, the world will be Christianized, and a period of righteousness and peace will happen. That's the millennium. Um, okay, some of these are repeat, obviously. I didn't do a great job of reading back through my notes. See a large conversion of Jews. Sin will not be fully eliminated in the millennium, but it will be brought to a minimum. The golden age of spiritual prosperity will last for a long period. And it's, may, it's not necessarily saying that the millennium is a literal thousand-year period. Most post-millennial advocates would view the great tribulation of Matthew 24, which we're going to get into in a couple weeks, and the apostasy or the man of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians 2, as things that have already happened in the past. And so they would, uh, readers, uh, post-millennial people that view this, they would read Revelation, much of what happens in Revelation, especially uh, chapters 4 through 19, as things describing mostly things that have already happened in the past. And they would look at a lot of these things that happened in chapters 4 through 19 and these battles and stuff as symbolic of the, of the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 when Rome came and sacked Jerusalem and, um, and destroyed the temple. So they're kind of looking back uh, at, at reading that, reading these, these aspects of Matthew 24 and 2 Thessalonians as things that have already happened. But they would also look, uh, they'd hold that there would be a, a limited manifest, manifestation of evil before Jesus returns. Um, and then flip the page there. So that's kind of the main points. And then on the back of that page, a few objections to the post-mill position. And then we'll do this for all of them. Proponent, uh, the main points of it and then objections. The first is, is that the Old Testament prophecies interpreted by post-mill advocates referring to a future millennial age, actually picture the final state of the redeemed community. And so what, what we're saying here is that the, the post-millennial people read the Bible, they read the Old Testament, and they see these glorious promises, which most other Christians think are talking about this eternal state, like the final and full victory of Christ. And, it's, and, and the, the, the objection is, is that they're trying to pull too much of the future or too much of heaven into this kind of present millennium, and they sort of overreach, if that, if, if that makes sense, and that they think that this millennium is, is um, this time of great prosperity, um, and so they attempt to bring too much of the future into the present. 
the common post-mill view, second uh, objection there, the common post-mill view of the great tribulation of Matthew 24 and 2 Thessalonians 2 is hard to justify. So we'll read through Matthew 24 that I think talk about signs of the end of the age and post-millennialists view those things as having already happened. But it just seems clearly by the text that these are speaking about some of the things that are mentioned in Matthew 24. Uh, you can say, yeah, that, that probably has already happened, but m- m- much of it, maybe most of it, clearly seems to be a future event. And so it just seems kind of to not square with the text. And then I think this is probably the... Uh, this isn't necessarily scriptural, but it's more just evidential as we look at the world. The post-mill expectation of a future golden age before Christ's return does not seem to square with the continuing tension in history, in the history of the world between the kingdom of God and the forces of evil. I mean, we just kind of look around us. It doesn't seem like things are really... I think things are always getting better and always getting worse. I think Augustine was right when he talked about the city of God and the city of man. I think the kingdom of God is always expanding, but the kingdom of this world is always expanding as well. And so things are are kind of like always getting better, but they're also always getting worse. And to think that things are just only always getting better just doesn't seem to square with the reality of human history. Uh, We see in Matthew 13... Verses 36 to 43, we won't take the time to read it, but Jesus teaches that evil people will continue to exist alongside God's redeemed people until the time of the harvest. Jesus says there will always be tares with the wheat. There will always be weeds and wheat together, and that they really won't be separated until, until Jesus comes. Um, post-millennialism really uh, what was very popular in the church and it really took a nosedive as far as uh, popular, uh, popularity really when the world wars came because people were just like, these, these things can't be true. I mean, World War I and a million people die in the trenches in Europe and World War II comes. And so they really took kind of in, in popularity a, uh, um, a, a nosedive. But certainly still some faithful Christians uh, believe this. Charles Hodge, a great uh, a theologian. B.B. Warfield, another great theologian. And probably the greatest uh, American theologian in the history of our country, Jonathan Edwards, uh, believed this. Of course, he back in the 1700s. So any quick questions about post-millennialism before we get into amillennialism? We have some, some uh, microphones that are going to go around. Anybody, anybody at all? Going once, going twice. Okay, amillennialism, next page. This is the view, uh, and, and, and amillennialism isn't really a good word because um, when you put an A in front of something, you know, it makes it like meaning not that. And so you'd think that, they, that amillennialists would, don't believe in a millennium. That's not a, a, a real a correct uh, uh, description. They believe that the, uh, the millennium is actually currently happening, but in heaven. And so the term amillennial is not a great description because it suggests there is no millennium, which is not what uh, Emil believes. Rather, they believe that the millennium is already being realized or inaugurated um, in heaven. It's already happening. So they would interpret uh, Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, as we read, as describing the present reign of the souls of the deceased believers with Christ in heaven. So they would see that here we are on earth in the present age, and when uh, the millennium is, is speaking of these deceased, uh, martyred Christians uh, 
on these thrones ruling, that it's speaking of dead people that are Christians in, in the past, uh, with Jesus now presently reigning um, in this heavenly millennium. They understand the binding of Satan mentioned in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, that we read about. Remember how we said that Satan would be bound for a thousand years? They think that's happening now as being in effect during the entire period between the first and second comings of Christ, and it will end shortly before Christ's return. And they would point to Matthew 12, 29, and a few other verses in the Gospels that seem to say similar things as evidence of Satan's binding by Christ. Um, this is, and it's also evident by the spread of the gospel through the centuries. So if you could throw up Matthew 12, 29, this is Jesus speaking where he says, How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. And in the context there, Jesus is speaking about his, his conquering of evil. And so Amelinus would look at the, the work of Christ on the cross as Jesus not, not completely um, nullifying Satan's uh, ability to have any effect, but strongly binding him. And so when they see this binding in the millennium mentioned in Revelation 20, they think that Jesus has bound Satan to a great degree currently so that the gospel can slowly spread through the centuries and then he'll be loosed at the end of the, um, this age for a great battle where, where, where Jesus will finally vanquish him forever. Uh, they believe that the kingdom is, is now present in the world, although not fully realized, as the victorious Christ is ruling his people by his word and spirit, though they would look forward to a future glorious and perfect kingdom on the new earth in the life to come. So um, I, I think one of the real strong points of amillennialism is that it has this sort of very realistic view about what I think is a very helpful way to look at just reality. And it's called this already not yet tension of the scriptures, where we are already realizing Christ's reign. We are already, uh, Ephesians would say, we're already seated with Christ in heavenly places, but we have not yet fully realized all that will be ours in that glorified state, if that makes sense, right? So there's this kind of tension between the already not yet aspect of life in the kingdom. And so they would see um, uh, reality as having this already yet tension. Yes, Jesus is reigning, but he, the, the kingdom is not yet consummated. And I, I do think that's one of the strengths of this view. Not that the others don't necessarily agree with that, but it really emphasizes that. Um, it expects the... Okay, uh, Christ won a decisive, has won a decisive victory over evil, but evil will continue to exist alongside the kingdom of heaven on earth until the end of this present age. And so I think we can all agree that, unless you're post mill I don't mean to beat up on you too hard, but that just seems to be a more realistic per, uh, uh, perception of, of current reality. Although we are enjoying many eschatological blessings at the present time, in other words, future blessings that are already ours in Christ, we look forward to a climactic series of future events associated with the second coming of Christ which will usher in the final state or age to come. They also, like I think most Christians do, expect the bringing of the gospel to all nations and the conversion of the fullness of Israel, Romans 11, to be completed before Christ's return. So again, they would look at Romans 11 as, as God being faithful, um, regrafting in uh, a great number of Jews back into the olive tree. They would look for an intensified form of tribulation and apostasy as well as the appearance of a personal antichrist before the second coming. 
And the gospel is now advancing by the Spirit's power through the church's witness. So um, it, it's, it's a really kind of a pretty, uh, one of the things that's attractive about amillennialism is it's kind of very clear and straightforward. And it's, it's simple. It's kind of easier to understand. We're in this present age where the gospel's advancing. Uh, the kingdom of God is growing, but certainly evil is continuing to, to you know, there will always be wheat and tares. Christ is reigning and then Christ will return, and that ushers in the eternal state. At Christ's return, there is the resurrection of, of the dead uh, and the judgment of believers and unbelievers, uh, the belie- believers to, Jesus, to, be, to heaven to be with God forever, unbelievers to eternal separation from him forever, and the eternal state is ushered in. So it's really the easiest to sort of grasp. Um, and I will say that I think that if just a plain reading of the majority of the New Testament seems to, um, seems to square most with amillennialism. Because the Bible talks, and we're going to talk about premillennialism here in a second, the Bible mostly, except for this uh, text in Revelation that we talked about, um, r- really looks at just two ages, the, the present age and the age to come. The age that is, that we're living in right now, and the age to come. And this, this sort of idea of we're in this present age, Jesus returns, and then there's the age to come, it, it seems to be the, the emphasis of the New Testament and is sort of uh, the, the simplicity of this particular view. Not, again, not saying it's true. Um, m- many Christians would agree or disagree, but, but it's one of the strengths of this, this view. They would say that because the uh, only one passage, Revelation 20, we read, appears to teach a future earthly millennium, that we, uh, and, it, and that passage is obscure, it's unwise to base such a major doctrine on one passage filled with uncertainty. And they're sort of pointing at the premillennial people in that. They're saying, hey, you're, you guys are going a little too far on that. They understand the second coming of Christ to be a single event and not one that involves two phases. Which, by the way, most, I think, historically, most premillennialists would, would uh, agree with. But there's a newer form of premillennialism which breaks the return of Christ up into two parts that we'll talk about in a second. Uh, all millennialism just sees one return of Jesus, um, and, and then that ushers in the, in the, the eternal state. Um, it hold that the scriptures teach one resurrection, but for both believers and unbelievers, not two, as some Christians believe. And that the thousand-year vision prepares the church for a long period of witness and suffering between Christ's first coming to bind Satan and his return to destroy him. So Amillennius would say that's where we are. We are in this long period of the slow suffering uh, filled with tribulation, advance of the gospel. Some Christians don't like to think about Christians going through tribulation, but it there's many, many verses that talk about how you must endure persecution and tribulation. And through many trials, you must enter the kingdom. And so one of the strengths of amillennialism is that it seems to really square with the, with the actual experience of much of the church. It does not promise relief from persecution nor a general improvement of living conditions on a sin-infected first earth prior to the new heavens. Okay, so that's the main points of amillennialism. Let's flip the page. Um, oh, and then one more point, and this is sort of, uh, um, uh, it's, it's all millennialism's critique of premillennialism, which we'll get into here in a second. It contends that the idea of glorified believers and sinners living together on earth together during the millennium as too difficult to accept 
and does not square with the finality of many of the New Testament passages on glorification. So they see a much clearer, kind of simpler, clean-cut, Jesus returns, heaven, hell, eternity for everybody. And premillennialists, which we'll talk about in a second, believe that during the millennium, uh, there will be... uh, there will be a, a, an earthly reign of Christ that's, that's not fully established finally and fully, and that there will be both sinners and glorified, resurrected believers. And the amillennial position would say, ah, that just seems kind of hard to square biblically. In the New Testament, there just seems to be a lot of finality. Jesus comes back, and then, you know, you kind of have one, you, you have one chance to trust in Christ. Before Jesus comes back, he comes back, and that's it. Um, so they would say that that, which we're going to go over in just a second, is hard to think about are hard to, to square with the Bible. Objections to the Amil view. Um, in response to, to objection that only one passage may teach a, a future earthly millennium, they say that, you know, it's only one thing in the Bible, one passage in the Bible says that. Well, uh, um, uh, you can say that the Bible can be clear even if it only says something once. So um, they say, hey, there's only one passage that talks about the millennium, um, so we shouldn't make so much a big deal about it. And an objection to that would be, well, you know, the Bible's authoritative. It doesn't have to say things over and over and over again for it to be true. Um, Another objection would be that the binding of Satan in Revelation 20 seems to be more extensive than what is alluded to in Matthew 12, 28, uh, and 29. Remember, we just read about Matthew 12, how it says that Jesus goes in and he he binds the strong man. And so all millennials would believe that we're in this present earth age where Satan is, for the most part, bound and not able to wreak havoc, and he will be loosed right before the uh, you know, end of, when, before Jesus comes, and then Jesus will, will finally and fully defeat him. And, um, and they would look at that, that passage in Revelation 20 that we read, where it said that Satan is bound, and, and they would say, that's happening now. Premillennialists would say, nah, it, that that it seems like the work of Satan in this world today is so extensive that it doesn't seem like we could call that him being bound. So that's a critique of that, of that view. Um, the premillennialists counter that Revelation 20 does teach two res- resurrections. We'll get to that in a second. Premillennialists counter that although, although it seems strange to envision glorified believers living on earth together with uh, sinners during the millennium while Jesus is on the earth in physical form reigning. Uh, they admit, the premillennialists would admit that that seems strange, but they would say it's certainly possible for God to bring this about. In fact, Jesus lived on earth with his glorified body for 40 days after the resurrection. So premillennialists would also counter that it's not impossible that evil and a secret rebellion could persist on earth despite the bodily presence of Christ reigning as king. It would say Judas lived with Jesus for three years and still betrayed him. So there's some, kind of some infighting between the A-mill proponents and the pre, um, pre-mill folks. Proponents of this view, and I would say that this is probably maybe the dominant view among scholars in the history of the church. Um, Gerhardus Voss, Herman Ritterboss, Anthony Hokema, many, maybe most, I'm, 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 I don't know if, I'm, I, think I'm, I think I'm right on this, I could be wrong, Many, probably most, Reformed theologians would, would fall in some aspect of amillennialism. It should also be noted that Augustine, Martin Luther, and John Calvin were probably closest to this position, 
but it's hard to determine their position because they weren't as concerned about these issues in their day. They were too busy fighting Rome and the Catholic Church and talking about justification rather than eschatology. So they, their eschatology is not as easy to discern. Okay, any questions real quick about, about, pre, uh, about amillennialism before we get into pre? Yes, Lewis, get the uh, mic so everybody can hear you. In this point of view, uh, there is no mention of the rapture at all? Well, yeah, they would believe that the rapture, when we talk about Christ's return, that's just another way of saying the rapture. And that word rapture comes from a, a word in First Thessalonians 4. They would believe that the rapture is just a one-time event. Jesus comes, um, and, and so, so would the post mill. So when I say... So for them, the rapture and the judgment is in the same event. Same event, yeah, right, right. Good question. Any other questions? Okay, let's get into premillennialism now. Now, this is probably where those of you that are, grew up in America are probably more familiar with, with this. Premillennialism is that, that where it comes pre is that they're saying that, and there's two types of premillennialism. There's historic premillennialism, uh, which has been around for, you know, like these other views since the first and second centuries. And then there's a very new version of premillennialism that's existed within the past 150 years uh, called dispensational premillennialism, which has some similarities to historic premillennialism, but um, differs in some very distinct, um, very distinct areas. So let's look at historic premillennialism first. And so this idea of premillennial means that Jesus is coming back before the millennium. So Christ returns before. A number of events must happen before Christ returns. The evangelization of nations, great tribulation, great apostasy or rebellion. In other words, the revelation of the Antichrist uh, and the appearance of the Antichrist. So, so these are things that we see kind of in Matthew 24 and 2 Thessalonians 2. They, they believe that the church has been going through tribulation but will intensify and endure great tribulation. So one contrast between historic premillennialism and the much more common, uh, uh, the much newer version of dispensational premillennialism is that historic premillennialists believe that Christians and the church will have to endure tribulation, whereas the dispensational premillennialists believe that the church is raptured out prior to a tribulation, to the tribulation. So that's a distinction between, between these two. The second coming will not be a two-stage event the second coming or the rapture, but a one-point, a, a, a one-stage event. So they would agree with the post-millennialists and the amills that the, the second coming or the rapture, the return of Christ, is a one-time event. And they would view um, the verses in 1 Thessalonians 4, which I'll read, which we're going to preach on here in a couple weeks when we get to it, which will be interesting. We'll kind of, you'll get a double dip on, on some of these truths. They would see that this language um, of of where we get this word rapture from in 1 Thessalonians 4 as meaning something uh, very different from what dispensational premillennialists would, would believe. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, let me read it. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus... God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In other words, Jesus is coming back and he's going to bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, 
will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend, right, descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will be, uh, then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's where the word rapture comes, that caught up together. Uh, it, it, the, the, the word, uh, the, the original language word there is where we get our English word rapture from. We will be caught up together with him in the air to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, next week when we talk more fully about the rapture, we'll see that for the vast majority of the church, Christians have believed and interpreted that language of being caught up together with the Lord and meeting him in the air. They, they have uh, seen Paul as speaking of and really alluding to like a king who has gone out to conquer a foe and he's coming back to his city or to his kingdom and the the inhabitants of his kingdom go out of the city gates to meet him outside the city gates then to usher him back into the city, right? And so the vast majority of the history of the church has believed that the rapture is, yes, us going, that this verse is speaking of us going to meet the Lord in the air, in like a victory parade back down to the earth. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a rapture. It's an up and then back down with Jesus is like a, a victory parade of the, of the returning conquering king. So it's a, it's a one-time thing, okay? Now we're going to look at dispensational premillennialism that, that breaks that up, that we go up and we're in heaven for seven years and then we come back down. And that's a very new thought. Um, and I, I think it has lots of problems. I don't, I don't think that's really what the Bible teaches. But that, see, that's, so that's the difference, Lewis, that the, the, these other three views view the rapture as just a one-time thing rather than split up into two things. Does that help? I know that was kind of a long explanation there. Okay, so um, Christ descends to the earth. There, back to the points on premillennialism. The Antichrist is slain and his oppressive reign is brought to an end. At this time or before, the vast majority of Jews living will repent of their sins and, and believe in Christ as Messiah. So you can see how pretty much everybody believes that. And that's really important because we see that in Romans 11. And we're going to get into that in the last week about, about the hope of, of, of even ethnic Jews today and uh, a wide-scale conversion of them that we see in Romans 11, 25, and 26. Satan will be bound um, and Christ will reign. So now we're in this millennium. And Satan is bound in a much, much more significant way than what the amillennialists would believe about how Satan is bound kind of currently, right? So there's a, there's a difference there. Um, uh, unbelievers will also... Now, this is a challenge for this view, but they believe that unbelievers will be on earth during this time and that many of the unbelievers will become believers after the, after the return of Christ. And during this time in the millennium, Jesus is physically on earth reigning. And during this time, so when Jesus came, came so premillennialists pre historic believe that Jesus comes back and that only the righteous are raised. So there are, you know, your great-great-grandmother that was a Christian is now raised and has a glorified body. And we who are Christians will instantly be changed and have glorified bodies. But there, there will be then people who are alive, who are unbelievers, who will remain alive during the millennium. And they will have an opportunity, and some of them will repent and believe. 
Now that would be wonderful, but one critique of this uh, particular view is that it doesn't seem to square with a lot of the New Testament verses that speak about the finality of Jesus coming like a thief in the night, and that's it. You must be ready. And that's where the amillennial position um, seems to be strong, and the premillennial position kind of has some challenges because they see during this earthly reign of Jesus that there will be another opportunity to repent after Jesus comes. Does that make sense, kind of? So that's a challenge. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it's, it's a challenge. If you believe that, you, gotta, you, you do have to, to work through that. The unbelieving nations which are still upon the earth at this time are kept in check, and Jesus will reign physically on earth with a rod of iron. Um, this millennium is not to be confused with the final state because Satan will be loosed at the end of this time. You can see there the battle of Gog and Magog, and there will be the great white throne judgment, and then we will usher into eternity forever and ever and ever. Um, and then Christ will raise all believers, uh, all, uh, all believers, and then even the unbelievers who have stayed in the ground, those who died long ago, weren't raised at his first return, at his return here, will be raised here for the final judgment and will, will usher into the final state forever and ever and ever. Let's flip the page there to some of the objections to the pre-mill view. Um, the objections would be that Revelation 20 does not indisputably prove uh, an, an earthly reign um, after the second coming. That's what Amillennialists would say. The return of the glorified Christ and glorified believers to an earth where sin and death still exist would seem to violate the finality of their glorification. Um, and, and I think this really, I think this is really the huge weak spot of premillennialism is that so much of the New Testament just seems to be so clear about that there are two ages, this age and the age to come. And Jesus is coming back, and you must repent, and Jesus is coming back. Well, premillennialism would hold that, um, that the age to come, it, it kind of actually brings in a third age here. There's the age that we're in right now, then there's this millennium, and then there is the age to come. And it would also have this sort of um, what seems to be a little bit of a biblically awkward environment where you have resurrected, glorified believers on the earth with sinful, rebellious people and Jesus ruling on earth and people still, um, still disobeying him and rebelling against him to at least to some degree. And that, that's a challenge. Again, I'm not saying that can't happen. I'm just saying that's a, that is a, a challenge uh, of that view. And the earthly millennial reign does not seem to accord with much New Testament teaching because it doesn't present, uh, it doesn't belong either to the present age or the age to come, like, like I mentioned, okay? So um, lots more we can say about that. Proponents of the historic premillennial view would be George Eldon Ladd, a very famous theologian, James Boyce, very, very famous Baptist, uh, a little guy named John Piper. I don't know if you've ever heard of him before. Uh, Jim Hamilton, a very sharp professor at Southern Seminary, and Wayne Grudem. Um, all guys that I respect a lot. Okay, so that's the premillennial view. This is probably, I would say, a good number of, of American evangelicals are in this, this view right here. Any questions about that? Yes, James. Get a, get a microphone for James. Thanks. Uh, and just one question. Yeah. In Revelation 3.10, when Jesus says to the church that he would keep us from the hour of testing... Doesn't that contradict what's up there, saying that he's going to keep us from the tribulation? Keep us from the hour of testing in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Um, 
because you have kept my word. So he's speaking to the church in Philadelphia at that point. So that's a specific word to the church in Philadelphia. And he's saying, because you've kept my words. I think that, so remember, remember verses, uh, chapters 1 through 3 in uh, Revelation are letters to current churches. Not to say that they don't have any applicability to us. And then 4 through 19 are these seals and trumpets that are going that are maybe talking about God's wrath. So if that were the only verse in the Bible, James, that talked about wrath and testing and tribulation, I would say, yeah, I think that would mean that maybe. But, you know, we have to interpret the Bible with other verses. And one objection to that, I'm not, I'm not saying this is, I'm not, I'm not saying that this is uh, false or whatever. I'm just saying one objection to that would be that there are many other verses in the New Testament that would speak about how we will have to endure. Acts 14, 22, through many persecutions, you must enter the kingdom of God. First Peter chapter 4, don't think it's a strange thing that this fiery trial has come upon you. You're being proved for Christ's name. So, you know, we've got to kind of work all those things together. But great, great point, great point. Does that answer your question? Yeah, good. Any other? Yes, Lewis. I've got a question. Uh, over there was, hey, apostasy, you're talking about the race of the Antichrist. Um, apostasy, uh, yeah, yeah, yes, I'm sorry. So, yeah. in, in that point of view, uh, the rise of the Antichrist, the unification of the... Uh, of the um, monetary um, currency in the world, the reconstruction of the Jerusalem temple, the prophecies of the Old Testament referring to, will happen there, we'll, and we will still be here, or our generations after us. And then, and then Christ will come, and then will be the millennium. Yes. And by millennium, you mean like, for example, in uh, the book of Job, the devil was wandering around the earth. Uh-huh. In the time of Jesus, the devil was wandering around the earth. And then uh, when those people think the millennium is that the devil right now is not wandering around the earth and yeah. we tempt it because we tempt it for our own desires, not because yeah. the devil is tempting us. No, no, no. They would think that, they would think that the devil's still active. No, I'm not. These people are not um, un, unrealistic about evil. They're just saying that he is restrained. As Jude would say, he's on eternal chains and that God has got a check on him to let the church slowly, you know, through pain and suffering, but slowly uh, advance. But I, I interrupted you, so keep going. So in, in mm. when, when you say that here, the millennium, he will be completely restrained, but we'll be going through the tribulation. So uh, the, the Antichrist, we will see the Antichrist for reason, right? And he say, be, yeah. believe in me, I'm God. I am I'm the only God. There yeah. is no God. I am yeah. God. And then, like, People were saying, like, back in where the United uh, European nations start acting, you know, together. Some people view that as a, as, yeah. Uh-huh. And then, so the rapture will come after that? Yes. So, so you know, sometimes when people think about um, uh, a pre-trib, post-trib ra- 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 uh, rapture, um, these folks would be post-historic premillennialism, which I think has probably been the dominant view in America, is 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 post-tribulation return of Christ, post-tribulation rapture. This newer version, dispensational premillennialism, is pre-tribulation rapture. So if, you, if, you, if this view is correct and we are alive um, during this time, we will see the rise of a personal antichrist and, and, and there will be, to some degree, they would say that the, the whole, since the cross, there's been tribulation. I mean, let's, let's realize that we're Americans, you're Cuban, and you actually, brother, have a much, <laughs> brother, you have a much better understanding of what persecution is than probably the vast majority of us in this room. But let's also say that there, 
You know, to say that we won't suffer tribulation seems to be unrealistic to the experience of the vast majority of Christians. I mean, there are people in the Middle East, Iran, other places, Sudan, that are just being treated horribly. But there would, that's always been in the church age, but there will be a great intensification, a great tribulation after the um, revealing of the Antichrist. And if you're a Christian alive during that time, yes, you may, you would have to face you would have to face that, um, that period, and then Christ would, would return. Yeah. The church, the church will stay in the world during the tribulation. I'm thinking of the role of the Holy Spirit. Uh, when when the, there is a reference that he yes. will be taken out, then there will be no... You have to give your life... For, for salvation yes. instead of uh, accepting Jesus. Yeah, I, I think the Holy Spirit will still be active here, helping people stay After faithful. The, yeah, it will still be active. The Holy Spirit will be active, helping Christians stay faithful, preserving Christians, guarding Christians, you know, all, all sorts of stuff. But it will just be a, a time of very intense tribulation, unlike anything we've ever, we've ever seen. And I think these things are spoken of in uh, Matthew chapter 24. And by the way, um, the amillennialists believe this too. They would believe that probably very likely before Christ returns, there will just be an increasing tribulation. Um, so there's, there's actually, it may not seem like it, there's actually a lot of similarity between the historic premillennialism and the amillennialism. There's just a difference about the return of Christ before, uh, you know, the timing of his return. Um, okay, so um, let, let's, let's, let's kind of crank through this, this last one here. Any, one, one, yeah, Ricky. Can you talk about um, briefly? Um, <laughs> Come on, Ricky. Me talk about something <laughs> briefly? Come on, brother. Um, delve into the loosing, the binding and loosing of Satan. Mm-hmm. Um, is there biblical evidence that before the the first coming, which I assume is the incarnation of Christ, is that correct? Yeah. That the the devil's works were more rampant than after Christ was incarnate and I mean the idea that Satan's works are now restrained in some sort of way that they weren't before the incarnation is there biblical evidence for that and from my understanding of 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 the sovereignty and the power of God Satan has never been allowed to do anything on his yeah. own merit that God has not allowed or um, used for uh, the bringing about of the promises of Christ. So mm-hmm. I'm sort of struggling to understand this binding of Satan as mm-hmm. if, oh, well, things are better, I don't mm-hmm. know, um, mm-hmm. in a way than they were before the incarnation. Yeah. Um, that's a great question, Ricky, and I think that it's just uh, it's answered by many, many degrees. Um, I think we can make a case that... The, certainly the, the dawning of the new covenant and Jesus coming and the incarnation and then Jesus saying, it is better for me to go because I will send you a helper and the Holy Spirit and the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit being poured out on the church and God being with us and in every believer and the Holy Spirit being seeming to reside and dwell in every believer in a different and strong, maybe in a different, not the right word, in a stronger more pr- way than he did in the Old Testament, I think is evidence that, um, that, that, that the, the Holy Spirit's work is, is more poured out, as the Joel 2 prophecy would tell us, and um, that 
I think when Jesus talks in Matthew or Mark, Matthew 12 about Satan being bound, I think that the, the resurrection um, does bind him to some degree. So that's why I, I, I am attracted to the amillennial view of there being some binding. I'm not saying it's right, but I, I, I think that a helpful way to look at it is like um, World War II. Help me, you history buffs. There's a difference between D-Day and, and V-Day, right? And D-Day in Normandy was the decisive battle that won the war, but the war actually didn't end until a little bit later in, in V-Day. And so I think in the, in the incarnation and death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, a foothold of the new covenant, the pouring out of the Spirit has come, and the work of Satan has been minimized, yes. But even then, regardless of how we would classify the work of Satan, whether it was more prevalent in the Old Testament or less now or whatever, Ricky, I really appreciate your point, and I can't stress it enough, that yes, God is sovereign over all of these things. And in the Old Testament, he has to come ask permission whether he can, he can do anything to Job, and God gives it to him. And then in the New Testament, at the end, right before Revelation in Jude, which I referred to earlier when I was talking to Lewis, it says that, that he has Satan on this chain. So the devil, this is not like a, 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 this is not like the Seahawks and the Patriots in the fourth quarter, and they're both driving down the field, and let's just hope that the devil throws an interception on the one yard line, and we win. God is in control of human history, and he's sovereign, and so everything, it's, it's not like it's a tug of war between Jesus and Lucifer. So whatever's happening, and we don't see it rightly because we're mixed up in some view, which none of these are probably completely true. God is in control of those things, and Satan is on a leash. And he is a mere tool in the sovereign plan of God to bring glory to himself. Um, I hope I answered your question, Ricky. So I, yes, I, I, um, you did. That was, that was wonderful. Um, um, go Brad. <laughs> it wasn't quick. I know. Uh, <laughs> and then the, the understanding of the millennium happening in heaven. Is there biblical support for, I mean, obviously yeah. Christ ascends into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of God the yeah. Father, yeah. which is hashtag huge, right? Hashtag um, huge. So, <laughs> so I'm guessing yeah. in the midst of that, there's this millennium in heaven, right? Yeah. Yes. So is there any other, I mean, I guess I can read your, your scriptural references, but you you're can, there. But I would say this about the, the, the evidence of that would be Revelation 20 verses 4 through 6 that we read earlier where he says, then I saw, if you could put that up, Revelation 20 verse 4 through 6, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority of the judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Um, and they, they came to life skipping down there and reigned with Christ. This throne, this word thrones, that speak about this reign of the millennium, that word thrones in the Bible is almost, it's not almost, it's always used of a heavenly reign. So that's where uh, the amillennialists would point, they would use that as sort of scriptural evidence to say that this reign is a present one and it's a heavenly one. And I think even, like, we would all, regardless of where we fall in this, we would all agree that, 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 that Jesus is in charge, right? And, um, and so, uh, see, that's where it becomes, I mean, the fact that we're trying to, 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 to divvy this up so much is kind of an evidence of the fact that we probably aren't seeing it completely rightly anyway, right? We're trying to compartmentalize that which cannot be compartmentalized. So that would be the evidence of Christ's reign um, currently in the millennium. Thank yeah. you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, let me scoot. Uh, okay, you guys got... 
If you leave, if you, I won't be offended. I don't, I don't even notice. So you move around. You guys could all be asleep. I wouldn't, I would, I'd still be going. All right, let me, let, me, let me hit warp speed. Dispensational premillennialisms. Kids don't have to go to school in the morning, so we'll be all right. But you, we got to work. Okay. Dispensational. This is very new. Dispensations. Uh, this word dispensation um, is speaking about breaking human history up into seven dispensations or ages. And you can see those seven dispensations there. The age of innocence, of creation. The age of then the fall brought conscience and awareness of sin. Then a human government with Noah. The promise to Abraham. The law through Moses. The age of grace of the church age, which we're in right now through Christ. And then the seventh and final dispensation, the age of the kingdom and the millennium, which is the second coming. And after that comes the judgment. So this word dispensation is this theological system which has a lot of similarities to premillennialism, but a lot of differences as well, that breaks biblical and human history up into seven dispensations. The main points are most recent. I think it's also worth noting, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to hit on this one a little bit because I think this is the one that has the most challenges and the most holes. Um, it's very, very new, and it's almost exclusively in the American church. And I think it, um, I, I, I think it has... Uh, I think it has some pretty, pretty significant weaknesses. Many, it has many similarities to historic premillennialism, but with several key important distinctions. Um, and, and, and one of the real significant distinguishing characteristics of dispensational premillennialism is that it, it, it seeks to maintain a very clear distinction between Israel and the church even to the point where um, ardent dispensational premillennialists would see that God has different purposes for Israel and the church. There's so much we could say about that, and we're going to in, on the fourth week, so I'll hold off on that. Um, they believe that, um, that many of the Old Testament promises uh, will come sometime in the future, and God will establish his earthly, earthly kingdom involving ethnic Israel, his ancient people, the Abrahamic covenant included promises to the spiritual seed of Abraham or the church, New Testament believers, but its central promise was Abraham's physical descendants and that they would be given the land of Canaan. So they see this real distinction between Old Testament ethnic Israel and the New Testament spiritual church. They see that because the Jews rejected Jesus and the kingdom, that Christ proceeded to establish the church. The church, therefore, represents a kind of parentheses so this, this church age is a parenthesis of, of God's, God's plan and dealings with Israel. It adds another return of Christ, often called the, the, the rapture, which the others would call it the rapture as well. But it, it breaks, and this is, I think, one of the challenges. And again, they base this on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and that language of being caught up in the air to meet Jesus. They would, I think... I, wrongly interpret that as, as breaking the second coming of Jesus into two parts, um, when I think that rightly understood by the premillennialists and the awe and post is that that is just, um, that, again, that's kingly, victorious language of we're going out to usher in the victory of the king and coming back to the city. But this particular view would break Christ's uh, second return into like a part A and part B or a part one and part two. Um, they see the Great Tribulation as a seven-year period from, uh, from which the church will be spared. And they would see this seven-year period as fulfilling the, the 70th week of Daniel from Daniel chapter 9. And so they would see a lot of the passages in First Thessalonians, which we're currently going through on Sunday, about how we will be spared from, um, from wrath. And they would see that that would mean that, kind of, James, that we're going to be saved from this tribulation, where 
all the other Christians would believe that when the Bible talks about us being spared from wrath, that that is speaking about us being spared from God's wrath, not the persecution that we would face on the earth. Um, because there's so many other verses that also talk about how we will have to endure persecution. At the end of this seven-year per- period, Christ will return in glory, accompanied by the church. At this time, he will come all the way down to earth, destroy his enemies thus, with the battle of Armageddon. By this time, the nation of Israel will be re- regathered into Palestine. Christ will return. The vast majority of Israelites will turn to Christ. Again, Romans 11. Christ will now begin his millennial reign, and here it picks up very similarly to historic premillennialism. The real difference, the real distinguishing characteristic between this much newer, younger um, um, viewpoint is in the late 1800s, a man by the name of John Nelson Darby and a few other scholars began to see, a re- they, they interpreted a very distinct difference between God's purposes for Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. And so then that kind of began to be the rubric through which they viewed um, all of these end times um, um, issues. Uh, and then, okay, flip the page there, and we'll, we'll end here in just a second. Some ob- objections to this dispensational view. It sees many of the same objections. It, we could look at many of the same objections to premillennialism. They would also apply to premillennial dispensationalism. Um, One, I think a big objection is it fails to do justice to the basic unity of the biblical revelation. Uh, The scripture opponents of this view would say scripture does not seem to support seeing the church as a parenthesis. Um, There are many, many interpretive issues that seem to be problematic for dispensationalists. And then the teaching that God has a separate purpose for Israel and the church. Um, Opponents of this view would say that that is an error and that it contradicts many of the verses in the New Testament that speak about how God has had one people uh, really throughout history. In the Old Testament, certainly there was ethnic national Jews, but there was a true Jew, a remnant, the true believers. And then these true remnant, true Jews became the first New Testament church, the new believers in, in Pentecost. And then the Spirit was poured out onto all flesh. And so um, we see in the New Testament then that the, the, the true Jew of the Old Testament is the one who believed in the promise. And so to be a Jew, even in the Old Testament, w- was not so much circumcision or flesh, but it was belief in the promise. And then we see in Ephesians chapter 2 how God has torn down the wall between the Jew and the Gentile, where it seems like dispensationalism wants to keep that wall up between the Jew and the Gentile. Lots more we could say about that. Um, but there seems to be... Um, uh, the, uh, opponents of this view would see that they see much more unity, not, and I want to be real clear about this, and we'll definitely get into it in week four. Uh, opponents of this view don't believe that the church replaced Israel, but that the church has been grafted into true Israel, okay? And that there's always been only one true Israel. It's those, those who believe and um, and, and uh, there's only one people of God, whereas the dispensationalists kind of want to break it up a little bit. Um, proponents of this view would be Darby, Charles Ryrie, John Hagee, um, who I, if you, I'm just going to throw my cards on the table. I think John Hagee teaches all sorts of goofy stuff, and I don't think you should listen to him. I think he really gets a lot of things really, really wrong. First of all, he hangs around with a lot of those charlatan false go- false prosperity gospel preachers on TBN. Um, and second of all, he's put out some stuff in some books talking about how Jesus never 
um, claimed to be the Messiah, and he really hammers hard on this dual track stuff. And and I and although I think he has a great heart for Israel, which I appreciate, I think he he um, he, he gets into all sorts of air. I wouldn't listen to him. Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jeekins, these are the two men that wrote the Left Behind series or proponents of this view. A lot of the Left Behind books, very sensational kind of fictional view of end times, have sort of popularized this view. Any questions about dispensational, the much newer kind of cousin of historic premillennialism? Lewis. Let's get a mic, yeah. Uh, where they... Um, Star point, star points for for the idea of Christ coming before the tribulation and in being yeah. in heaven is, I think, is uh, John fourteen, the first few verses of John fourteen. I go to pray a place for you. Yes, um, yeah, and I will come return and, and, yeah. and pick up myself. But but I, that 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 could be said for any of you. Like Jesus is now right now preparing that and he's coming back for us. That would not just because you believe that doesn't mean that you need to believe in a two pronged return of Jesus. No, no, no. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I see your point. Okay, yeah. what, what I was thinking, I, it was kind of hard for me to see that verse apply in the other in the other views uh, uh-huh. because he says, "I'm, I'm telling you, I'm going to heaven. I'm, I'm preparing a, a place for you in heaven. Then I yeah. come pick you up to to be with me." Yeah. But then on the other views, we will be with him here, not on heaven. Yeah, I do think, I think we, well, there's a couple ways you could look at that verse. If you and I die right tonight, we get, we die of heart attacks because we're eating too much, you know, fried chicken. And we will be with him in heaven, but it will be a yet to be fully consummated heaven. The end of Revelation talks about heaven coming down and there being this renovated new heavens and new earth. So, yeah, so see, see how that, that, what Jesus is saying there in John chapter 14 squares with really all of these, all of these views. So there is, a, there is a, an intermediate state that all Christians will go to before the final and full state when heaven will not be some ambiguous, disembodied thing. It will be a new heavens and new earth. We will dwell, we'll have work, we'll have food. Jesus, after his resurrected body, he had a barbecue on the, on the beach. So, you know, he ate. He, and so it'll be a real existence. Yeah, yeah. Garrett. Hypothetically, let's act like you're John Piper for a second <laughs> and use the historic pre-mill. He, he does this all the time. He's like... <laughs> all right. Where would you say we're at on that graph? If uh, I would say that we are... Um, we, I, I would think we would be real close. I mean, you know, towards the... I think we're definitely trending closer towards the, yeah. the apostasy. That would be my view. But I also want to realize, I mean, that would be my view if I were historic pre-mill. Um, and I'll tell you what, kind of where I fall here in just a second. Um, I think that Christians have always viewed, I think it's good to sort of always be leaning forward into the face of the coming of the Lord. Um, and I do think we look around, but I don't think that this should cause us any fear. This should cause us joy. I mean, First Thessalonians 4 says, encourage one another with these words. You know, he's coming, so um, good question. Yeah. Anything else? Anything else? Okay, so where do I stand? Before you got to know, you got to leave. Uh, one more, one more. Bob. I've gone back and forth in the uh, mill and historic mill pretty much since I've been a Christian. Yeah. My, I mean, I'm not sure where I'm at. My only problem with the mill where I lean towards is there is very distinct 
talks about the Antichrist, the rebuilding of the temple. It talks about all the tribulations, the breaking of the seals and the bowls. And it almost seems like the Amil part that's lost in the wash. Yeah, is, I'd agree with that. It seems to minimize that. They would see... Um, this particular view, there's much more we could fill in here. They believe that there's a, a, an antichrist, but just a lot of it is ramping up. Like, so there would be a lot of similarity between the Amil and this right here. See what I'm saying? So there's a lot of similarity. So they believe there's an antichrist. So amillennialists believe in a personal antichrist. Second Thessalonians 2, the man of lawlessness comes. And they would believe Revelation 4 through 19, all of these seals and trumpets and all these wraths being poured out are happening in an increasing way. But instead of it happening kind of here and here, they would pull it in to, to here. So th there's actually, brother, a lot of similarity between the all-mill and pre-mill. A lot of similarity. Yeah, a lot, a lot of, point of points of agreement. Any other questions? Colonel, fought, <laughs> sir. All right, so um, there are a couple of things that um, I guess I'm, I'm not sure where I stand on all this stuff. Oh, welcome. probably be well, welcome, somewhere in the Welcome to the team, brother. Thing. So there are a couple of scriptures that kind of give me pause and make me think that there might be something to the pre-mill thing. And those are things like in, in um, Matthew chapter 24 yeah. where he talks about um, the um, days of Noah. People yep. had no idea that the Son of Man was coming. Now, granted, he was talking in reference to lost people, and they probably wouldn't know anything anyway. Yes. But on the other hand... Let me, let me time out. You're right, yep. John, but let's also realize that the all-male person would have no problem with that too. You know what I'm saying? So that, Matthew, that reading of Matthew 24 could fit in this system as well. The, the other part of that, though, is the part where it talks about one person being in the field, two people being in the field, yeah. one taken, the other one left. Yeah. There, then another person is at a, working at a mill, or one's a, two are asleep, and one is yes. taken, and another yes. one's left. What is that about? We're going to talk you know. about that next week, okay? You know. And people that believe in dispensational premillennialism see that as evidence of this left behind. That's where the word comes from, right. okay? Right. I, I think those verses actually teaching the opposite because it's hearkening back to the flood in Noah when the one that was swept away was the one that was carried away to judgment and the one that was left behind is the one that was spared. So I think that verse is actually saying the opposite thing of what the dispensation but that's a whole other night that we're going to talk about next Wednesday. Okay. Next Wednesday. Okay. So anyway, I'm sorry. I just blew your uh, mind. And John. then oh, the man, other this... ones. The other. Well, the other ones are in Daniel. Yeah. Where he talks about uh, confirming the covenant with a remnant or yeah. a group of people for one week. Yeah. And then you get into that. What is that whole? whole week yeah. About? We're going to talk about know. that later on. I mean, there's so much to Daniel chapter nine, seventieth right. week. Um, yeah, so the, they, would, they would view the 70th week as kind of right here, and all millennialists would be, view the 70 week as, you know, right here. So there's, it fits into different phases there. Okay. Yeah. So where do I, I, I know it's getting late. Where I'm like Bob and maybe like John, um, I think for most of my Christian life I've been here. Um, the more I read the Bible in the New Testament, 
I find a lot of attractiveness. This seems to, to make, this seems to make a lot of sense. There are some issues and problems here. And so I kind of fluctuate between all mill and historic pre-mill, depending on the latest person that I've read or heard preach about it. Kind of is the, is the way I, I go. I see a lot of, uh, uh, I see, I actually see a lot of similarities between these, between these two. I actually wish this were true. Um, I wish this were true because it would just be like conquering kingdom, you know? Let's just, like, this is like, you know, just, just smash everybody and make everybody Christians. That would be awesome. I just don't think it's realistic. And I think this just has too many textual problems. This has too many issues. Um, uh, again, but uh, th- th- this particular proponent is full of faithful Christians, right? Um, but I think that, they, I think that there's uh, some pretty significant issues here. So I kind of am in between these two. Um, you know, you asked me today, I probably would lean towards Amil. You asked me tomorrow if I hear Piper get real passionate about it, I might be a historic pre-mill. I mean, you know, kind of the way it goes. Any other final questions? Okay, guys, I know this was a lot. Let me pray. I hope you come back next week. It will be a little bit more, like, it will land it a little bit more instead of being all over the place. And so, praise God. I'll stick around for any questions you may have. Lord, thank you for my brothers and sisters. Pray for your grace. Pray that Christians in this room would be encouraged. And Lord, if there's anyone in this room who does not know Jesus, let this not have been just a strange, goofy, academic exercise But God, would you land on their heart and let them know that they were created and you're the creator and they're a sinner and evil is real and the devil prowls about like a lion seeking whom he may devour and their only hope is you and they must turn from their sin and trust in you and God, you are coming soon. And God, I pray that any person that's in this room that has not considered these matters or has thought that they were a Christian and is really just a lukewarm, nominal uh, Christian and name only, I pray that you would jerk them from their slumber, wake them up, and cause them to bow down to the risen, glorified King, and that you would save them even tonight before they leave this building. I pray that you'd give us great rest and joy and bring us into your house again on Sunday to make much of Jesus. And we pray this in his glorious name. Amen. Thanks, folks.